there is a realization similar to how software eats the world. Machine learning is eating the world now. And if you build models for many parts of your organization, you will end up with hundreds of thousands of models that you have to maintain. And there is a challenge in the sense that once you build a model, generally it deteriorates over time. Just actually maintaining the impact that you get from a certain model actually takes some level of effort. And that could be automated monitoring, automated retraining, but those life cycle automation steps need to be in place. Once in place, it should be fairly easy to scale it up to thousands of models that you might have. Welcome to Quantum Black Voices, a series of interviews with the talented and diverse people building products to capture the transformative power of advanced analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Today, we're talking to data scientist Philip Pilgerstorfer. We talk about the role of a data scientist, and Philip brings that to life for us by describing one of his recent projects. Philip then goes on to explain the challenge of correlation versus causation in machine learning and describes one of the products he's been building to help address that challenge. We finish on the topic of productionizing models and how MLOps is becoming increasingly important for the organizations we serve. To learn more about Quantum Black and McKinsey Company, head to www.quantumblack.com. Enjoy the episode. Okay, you know the score. Who are you and what do you do? Hello, everyone. I am Philip. I'm a data scientist with Quantum Black in London. Awesome. Why don't we start with a big question? What is a data scientist? That's, that is a big question. Data scientist, how I would define it, is somebody who tries to find patterns in data which generally is a very creative process. And increasingly, it also means to productionize this pattern finding when you put models into production. So I think the definition of a data scientist is still evolving. It's probably a mix of 60% machine learning, and I mean like the models and algorithms, 30% statistician, specifically when you think about data and variation in the data, sample bias, how was it gathered and those things. And 10% software engineer. And probably in the medium term future, the software engineer is going to grow a bit larger, but it's like a mix of disciplines. Let's talk about your education a bit. I know you have a background in econometrics. For the uninitiated, what exactly is econometrics? It's the analysis of how people behave corresponding to policy in some shape or form, right? Like that can be obviously people making pension decisions. Maybe it's about, okay, you have the financial markets in the back and a lot of information really that you need to consider. Could also be companies making merchant acquisition decisions within antitrust or regulatory environment and competitive environment. So there's a lot of complexity. Often the data is not large enough to make really good conclusions, but the weight is often on the method rather than the data. What attracted you to economics? I think generally I am interested in like the big picture questions. 
And economics is probably like the largest denominator that I could find okay. in, in, in that respect. And it still is kind of technical for good or worse. It, it can be overly mathematical as an academic discipline, but like I, I like the, the grandness of, of the theme, even though in the end I was more interested in microeconomics, which is more about individuals rather than economies at large. Then you pivoted a bit, right? And ended up studying machine learning at UCL. What triggered you to make a move into that discipline? This is probably coming back to DeepMind's AlphaGo paper. Okay. Which came out at the time when I had to make decisions about myself and where I want to go and so on. And we actually, we, we read the paper in the Econometrics seminar. And well, it, it was a very convincing paper. It basically used the exact same mathematical models and methods that I would use for the type of models I, I would do in econometrics, but used it for beating the world champion in Go. So that was arguably more exciting okay. than working on antitrust cases, which also valuable, but I think is doing new and cool things outweighed the maybe more sophisticated econometrics approaches, at least from a technical perspective. Right. So machine learning was exciting. It felt like undiscovered land. Exactly. I, th I think that's still the case. I think there's still a lot of developments in, in the area and a lot of things you can learn and also a lot of new and creative uses for especially deep learning and especially NLP lately, for example. Yeah. So I don't know, it, it doesn't slow down necessarily. So it's, uh, it keeps, keeps giving. Machine learning is a very open discipline. Everybody's welcome. And you will find applications for almost anything, right? No doubt. I, I love that framing. Everybody's welcome. What attracted you to Quantum Black and McKinsey? What, what interested me about Quantum Black was the mix of machine learning and this strategic management perspective, right? So that we really try to tackle important problems that the clients have. And so it's the technical side as well as the impact side can you bring that to life a bit for us? Maybe by describing one of the use cases you've worked on while being here. So one of the use cases I've done recently was on the commercial side of automotive, specifically on when you give incentives for new car purchases. From an economics perspective, the price is actually kind of fixed. And most of the changes in the, in the price actually come from the incentives. So if we think of demand and supply, well, the demand will adjust to the incentives that you give to, to a customer. Give me an example of an incentive in this context. I, I'm buying a car. How would you incentivize my purchase? Well, there's, there's different types of incentives, but maybe the simplest one would be just a cash back. If you buy it right now, we give you 5,000 quid. Actually, that might be a lot, but depending on the car you buy. I haven't bought a car in years, so I have no idea if that's a large incentive either. It's no numbers, okay. <laughs> okay, so I'm buying a car and the incentive for me to go and buy it from this particular dealership is that there's a cashback incentive. Yeah, so okay. you would get like a few hundred or thousand uh, pound or dollar in like a cash rebate. Okay, so what's the goal here? What measure of performance are we trying to influence for the manufacturer? So the, the ultimate goal here would be to increase profitability. Automotive manufacturing sites are very large. They have a certain capacity. And you don't necessarily want to run it empty. So you generally try to hit a certain target of production. And in order to hit the target or be close to the target, one of the ways to do this would be the incentives that you can give. So if you have a product that is very successful, 
probably you don't need to give a lot of incentives, but if you need to compete with other car manufacturers, then probably you, you do. And there's well, a competitive side here as well. Got you. So where does machine learning come into play? So machine learning would be used for the demand estimation. So when you create counterfactuals, what would the demand be if we were to lower the price? Okay. Which is simple, but obviously there is a lot of things that determine how much demand there would be, which can be, as I said before, competitors, how good is our car, the, or this year's model, especially versus others, or could be geographic and macroeconomic effects as well. With COVID, I haven't checked the data, but I assume people buy fewer cars. So COVID would have an effect on your demand here as well. So there's a lot of factors influencing whether a vehicle is going to sell well in the current market? Yes. And this can increase in complexity when you look at local markets as well. Right? So you don't just look at the country level, but you would look at London right? or like Manchester. What type of models do people buy there generally? Which is also reflective of probably the demographics that you have there, but there might be other things as well. So it's like, what type of data do you want to consider? what is actually available as well. Right. So the machine is looking at historical data and estimating the impact or influence of all those different variables on demand. Yes. Okay. So we would try to augment the data that we would have with external ones and receive a prediction for, for the demand. And those predictions inform the incentivization strategy in different markets and areas. Exactly. So we actually build another layer on top and try to estimate what is the profit or capacity maximizing incentive that you would need to give. There is, of course, uncertainty because models are not perfect. And there's new methods coming out where you optimize a certain objective given the input from a model and understanding that the model itself is probabilistic, but also has errors itself. Okay, gosh, a lot of terminology to unpack there. Can you explain what you mean by probabilistic in this context? Maybe if you would do it over and over, you might get different results, which is not a technical definition. <laughs> pe- people are going to hate me for this. But. Well, it's a, an oversimplification for my benefit, so thank you. But okay. I, I guess what you're saying is that these predictions are based on historical data, but also limited by it. If there's uncertainty about the future, those predictions might not always be accurate. Yeah. I think there's the understanding that even if you get a new a forecast with the machine learning model that you use, there's still a level of uncertainty that is, in most cases, not intrinsically captured by the model. What is the known unknown? If you can model this distribution of outcomes, the range of scenarios that is still valid within the model, you could make better decisions with this. And you would also understand if you have a classification and we see it predicts that something is a cat, and you have the uncertainty there as well. Well, if it's very certain it's a cat, then probably we can trust it. If there's more uncertainty here, then maybe have a, have a double check here. Okay. How, how does a data scientist deal with that level of uncertainty? I suspect that's a tricky thing to communicate to stakeholders and organizations that are using these solutions to make critical decisions. The discussions are easier right now than they have been in the past. Why is that? Probably because people have more experience with using machine learning in, in certain for certain use cases. Right. And that's the understanding that these machine learning solutions aren't magic. Exactly. I think, especially when I joined, I think there was like an unrealistic expectation sometimes of like, yes, 
this, this is machine learning and it gives you the perfect answers. But gosh, that's only in a three years span, right? How, how long have you been with Quantum Black now? Yeah, three and a half years. So no, I think like the industry has changed dramatically. So point one, you, you can see that it lost a bit of the magic. I think it's still hugely impactful. So hopefully what we lost is a sense of hype, maybe. Okay. Even if it's not the silver bullet for getting you perfect predictions five years ahead, it's yeah. still, in most cases, way better than what we had before or what a human could do in, in, in many cases. Okay. Understanding that machine learning models generally are not perfect. And we see this in all forms and shape, even if we go beyond uncertainty, but towards, for example, fairness, we can have a very predictive model, but if the data it was based on includes certain types of discrimination, then probably the model will be discriminative as well. Okay. We are getting to a place where we understand that there's flaws, even if the models are very good, and also working on mitigation, so approaches how to, how, how to fix those things. But many of them are not super trivial. Got you. So it's not that machine learning has lost any of its impact, but the removal of some of that surrounding hype means we're having more constructive conversations with organizations about the potential limitations. I also think there is, especially if you think of the, some of the largest models we have, and right now it's probably still GPT-3, which is a very large language model, which is very powerful. It gives you very good text output. Right? It, it almost reads like English. But then you also know well, it's all mostly internet data. It will have a similar language to internet comments, which well, they can. There's some long tails here, probably. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. Some corners of the internet probably don't provide the best data set to train a model on how to communicate like a human. You probably need to focus yourself on on a few of the websites. Okay, got you. Let's um, change tack a little bit. I know you're involved in a bunch of internal initiatives and products used by our analytics teams. Can you tell us about one of those? One of the initiatives I'm involved with is Cartonex. That's an open source package for a Bayesian network-driven causal influence. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to stop you again there, Philip. Causal next. What problem is it solving for our teams delivering analytics in a context that I would understand? If you want to make if you want to derive actionable insights, then generally you're looking for a causal effect. Okay. The simple example here would be correlation versus causation. Only because a certain driver correlates with the outcome I'm interested in does not mean that I should recommend to the client to do more of that type. Okay. And, and now put that into context for us on the incentivization use case we were talking about earlier. Where do considerations around correlation and causality come into play? So for the automotive use case, I can explain by an example. Let's assume that we have a competitor launching a new car. So we, as the existing car company, in order to preempt the launch, we would actually start increasing our incentives because we know they have a competitive vehicle and otherwise people will buy the new product instead of ours. And an incentive here is decreasing the price of the car. Exactly. So what it boils down to is decreasing the price. Now, once the competitor launches, chances are the volume that we sell is still going to decrease. But because we decrease the price, increase the incentive, the drop would not be as large as before. But if we would not know that there's a new competitor, what we would observe is actually 
we decrease the price, but we also lose out on volume. So the naive conclusion could be, actually, we should increase the price. The more expensive a car, the more people buy it. And well, we go into some niches of economics, but generally that is not the case. Okay. Now, if we do have information about competitors, about the roadmap maybe, which is generally should be public, then we can actually take that into account and we can come to a conclusion that, yes, especially when there's a new competitor car coming, maybe because it also got good reviews, we should actually also decrease the price, right? Despite the naive conclusion that we should increase the price, the causal conclusion would be to decrease the price to, to compete with the new car. So we've got data on all these dimensions and there seems to be a relationship between them, but we can't figure out whether they're simply correlated or whether one is causing the other. Where does causal next come into play? When, when you see the data, it is very difficult to see those things, right? Like this example is very nice. It's easy to understand. And generally the clients we work with, they know the most obvious ways how their decision needs to be made. The challenge is what if you have a new scenario? What if we actually don't just consider competitors, but we consider lo loads of other things as well. If we think maybe temperature in the market that we look at, will this also affect things? Probably, but we don't really know how. So what we try to do with Cosonex is actually we put a human into the loop. We try to learn the relationship between the different features and then visualize it and allow humans to override or augment those relations with domain expertise. Got you. Okay. So by inserting that human back into the process, we can leverage their subject matter expertise to better understand whether a relationship is simply correlation or whether there's likely causation at play. In, in that example, actually, a competitor launching the car affects not just the demand for, for our car, but also our price. Because keep in mind, the data we look at is past data and the price there was set by humans, right? So we do observe, not nature, we observe people behaving in a certain way. And so we need to explain why people make decisions here, right? Which is generally very complicated. But we would say, okay, we have the competitor launching the car. We know that we, as the marketing team, when a competitor launches a car, we actually reduce our price. So there is a relationship between a competitor launching a car and us reducing the price, but then also on the demand itself, right? So it would be like a triangle in, in some kind. Right, so it's a double blow. <laughs> exactly. We've, we've reduced and it because of the competitor be... and we've also sold less because their car is better. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Or, or at least competing. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's super interesting. What are you working on right now? What I'm currently working on is how we can move models into production at scale, not just how can we productionize this one pipeline, this one incentive recommendation, if you want, but actually how can we deal with having thousands of models in production, which generally is about minimizing risk. A lot of things can happen and you need to monitor, you need to have good processes in place, similar to what DevOps is for software engineering, you would talk MLOps with respect to the model lifecycle. Okay. Can you elaborate on why an organization would want to put multiple models and data pipelines into a production environment? There is a realization similar to how software eats the world. 
machine learning is eating the world now. And if you build models for many parts of your organization, you will end up with hundreds of thousands of models that you have to maintain. And there is a challenge in the sense that once you build a model, generally it deteriorates over time. Just actually maintaining the impact that you get from a certain model actually takes some level of effort. Yeah. And that could be automated monitoring, automated retraining, but those life cycle automation steps need to be in place. Once in place, it should be fairly easy to scale it up to thousands of models that you might have. Got you. Can you frame this in the context of the incentivization use case we were talking about earlier? Why would they be putting multiple models into production and maintaining them over time? If we think about the incentive model, what you might want to do is actually build a model for each of the cars that you have. Now you can customize your models, car models for clarification. And so there's different levels of granularity that you could model. You might want to have like one very large model that predicts every type of car that you have, but then it also needs to generalize between the models and between geographies where you deploy it. Versus if you would have one for each car type, maybe not each customization, maybe that would be a feature, but you would end up with one model for each car type. Now you can go deeper, maybe not so much in automotive, but you could, for example, have one model for each SKU. So for any type of product a company sells, you might have a model that predicts the volume that you expect to sell within the next few weeks. And these models would be deployed and maintained in production so they could continue to provide predictions and recommendations on how to incentivize demand for specific products. It depends a bit on like what the requirements are for the use case. Generally, if it would be the model is actually exposed to customers on a website, then usually that would be higher traffic. If this is a model that is consumed by a middle management team that needs to make certain decisions, you might want to run it once a week. So you have different requirements there. And similarly, that would also mean different levels of sophistication in terms of how risk-proof it needs to be. Mm -hmm. If this is a critical model for your business, maybe let's think you are a ride-hailing app, then probably predicting how long a certain journey would take is relatively critical to your business. Okay, so we've got all of these models running production, augmenting the organization's decision-making. Earlier on, you were talking about MLOps as a way to think about maintaining these solutions. What is MLOps? The, the way I see it, MLOps is really about like minimizing the risk for having a model in production. Okay, when you say risk, what do you mean? So there, there would be several types of risk. I guess one would be that we make sure that we don't give terrible predictions or terrible recommendations to customers, right? Okay. Another one would be just having enough compute capacity so that you can actually process the models in a meaningful time, like in terms of latency, or to have, in fact, once you retrain the model, that you actually have a similar and hopefully improving level of accuracy over time. So it's speaking of model degradation, if you wouldn't do anything, the model would get worse. If you retrain, hopefully it remains somewhat constant, but what you would actually want is something that you don't just maintain, but you, you might improve over time as well. Maybe because of method, but because you are smart in the way how you use the past data, you get more of the past data, and you might find new features that really can drive more impact that you have with the model. 
So it's like any other product. It has users, they have needs. We want to make sure the product is still meeting those needs and requirements. But there are unique challenges associated with machine learning products due to the nature of models, how they make predictions, and how we retrain or improve them over time. What are the key dimensions you're considering on the MLOps initiative? On the initiative, we are looking at best practices for moving models into production, specifically at scale. This means there is a point on what is the type of people that we need on the project or on the product, if you, if you take a longer term perspective. What are the processes that you have? And they will be overlapped with how you run a software project with typically an agile way of working nowadays. And finally, with our initiative, we would be looking at the tooling and what is like the tech that could help us facilitate an MLOps perspective on the projects. So either improve the quality of certain model lifecycle steps or actually automate some of them. Very cool. Machine learning is maturing, but people, process, and technology is still the central framework governing how we think about its adoption. For aspiring data scientists, what skills and knowledge would you recommend they invest time in developing? I think the core really remains is the type of models that you, that you can do. So it's like a really good algorithmic foundation of the machine learning methods that are commonly used. It can be random forest, gradient boosting, very popular, but obviously a lot of the developments are in deep learning, especially on NLP right now, maybe in, in a year that's changing again, but a solid foundation in, in machine learning methods certainly helps. As a second point, in addition to the machine learning methods, a solid statistical way of thinking, which is much more about probabilities, which sometimes gets swallowed in the details for machine learning, but it gives you like a different perspective of how to think about data because also data, it's a sample, right? It, there is uncertainty given with it. There is sample biases in the way it was generated. And so looking at the statistical side actually, I think, makes you a, a better data scientist when you start from scratch. And lastly, I think given that machine learning and especially its applications are getting more and more commoditized, meaning that there is a shift towards seeing machine learning as part of software, having a bit of experience with respect to software engineering principles, DevOps, what is the CICD pipeline? I don't think it needs to be very deep, but I think like a lightweight understanding here will really help data scientists who start on the journey. Amazing. Thank you very much, Philip, for your time. Thank you, James. You've been listening to a podcast created by Quantum Black, a McKinsey company. This episode was produced by Tillman Becker and Catherine Shenton and edited by Clementine Rettig and myself, James Mulligan. If you'd like to learn more about Quantum Black, head to www.quantumblack.com. Thank you.